We've got a lot to cover this morning and a short time to do it, so I want to jump right in. And to introduce, I want to use the introduction that Jesus used a couple chapters earlier. So before we get to John 15, 12, if you're there, flip back to chapter 13 and look at verse 34. Chapter 13, verse 34, because Jesus has already brought up this topic of loving one another. And Jesus said this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, we're back to John 15. And remember that Jesus already brought up this topic that, that all people would know the defining characteristic of who his disciples were by the way that they loved one another. If you're paying attention in these chapters, as we go through the farewell discourse, thir chapter 13 to chapter 17, you'll notice Kevin and I were talking about this yesterday. There's just these repeating themes that just keep coming up over and over and over. And Jesus introduced the idea of loving one another back in chapter 13 he's going to come back to it and expand on it and there's several topics that keep happening like that uh, uh, remember we're just in the final hours of Jesus life the night before his crucifixion he's with his disciples he's teaching them he's training them he's having these conversations and and it's typical of the way that we have conversation that we we bring up a topic and eventually as the conversation moves we come back to it and we get to keep expounding on it and we keep to keep driving that Point home, and Jesus continues to do that with his disciples. He wants them to understand what it means to love one another because this was going to be a defining characteristic of that relationship, of the relationship that disciples would have with one another. It's a way that the world would know that they were truly his disciples. But that wasn't the only relationship he wanted them to know about. As you also heard George read, there's another relationship that they needed to be uh, caught up to speed on. There was another defining characteristic that would mark not their relationship within. Love for one another should mark their relationships within the church with, with other believers. But in terms of the relationship outside, the way the world would treat the believers, what would the world's opinion of Christ's followers be? Well, that defining characteristic was going to be marked by hatred. It was going to be marked by opposition, by persecution. And Jesus wanted them to realize, look, you need to realize these defining characteristics exist. This is kind of the mark of the relationship. This is how people are going to know that you're my disciples if you love one another. We can think of defining characteristics. Let me see if I can illustrate it for you. Um, by the way, next week, Norm McKenzie is going to be here and uh, speak on behalf of New Life Island, so your kids will probably be excited about that. Before I was a pastor, my wife and I worked at a camp, and I would do a similar thing where I would go to churches and I would speak on behalf of the camp and I'd uh, present the ministry and get to see people that we'd seen all summer long and worship with them in their places of worship. And there was one particular Saturday in April that we went to a church, and just the day before, we had had a father-son retreat at the camp. And so the camp had been full of 125 fathers and sons, and they spent the whole day fishing and playing frisbee and having a great time. And there was a defining characteristic. As I stood in the church on that Sunday morning, there was a defining characteristic that I could look out in the audience, and I knew who had been at father-son retreat. You see, uh, the way that worked, if you've ever been in Iowa, our camp was up close to the Minnesota border. 
it basically from the middle of November to the middle of March is just kind of one blizzard. A blustery, long, cold, cloudy, nasty. You didn't really enjoy going outside in the winter. So by the time you got to the first nice day of April, if it was warm enough to be outside, if it was sunny and 50, you spent all day outside. So what happens when a bunch of people who haven't seen the sun for four months spend all day on a dock fishing? red like tomatoes, right? I was up there on stage making the announcement with a red face and I could see the red faces in the audience. It was the defining characteristic. By this would all people know who had spent the weekend at camp, right? And Jesus in chapter 13 says, by this the world will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And he needed his disciples to understand that. But then there was another relationship, another defining characteristic that he needed them to understand. There was also going to be opposition that would come at them from the world. So let's jump into the text. And here is what Jesus says in John chapter 15, starting in verse 12. Let's start with this idea of love and what it means to love one another. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. That's that's the benchmark. That's the precedent that's sent. In the way that Jesus loved them, in the way that Jesus has loved us, that's the way that we ought to love others. Greater love has no one than this, than that someone laid down his life for his friends. Now, it's significant that he called them friends. We're going to talk about in the next verses, but before we get there, focus in on this idea that he's saying this is the greatest example of love, that someone would actually be willing to lay down their life for their friends. Jesus was the supreme example of someone who was willing to lay down his life for his friends. Just a few chapters earlier, you had seen the conflict escalate between the Pharisees when Jesus laid down his life by raising Lazarus from the dead. That was what uh, was kind of the pinnacle of creating the opposition and set the, set the, motion, set the events in motion that would lead to his arrest. And just a few hours after this, Jesus was going to hang on a tree and lay his life down for us, for his friends, for his disciples, for any who would turn from their sins and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. His finished work on the cross would provide salvation, atonement for sins. And it, why? what motivated him to do that? It was his love, that he was willing to lay down his life in this supreme example of self-sacrificial love. This concept of loving to the extent that we sacrifice for the good of others. It was so crucial to John as a writer that when you get to 1 John, he comes back to it again. And he wants the readers of 1 John to understand that, that uh, the true Christians, people who truly follow Christ, they love they love the brothers. They love other people that love Jesus. And they love with a self-sacrificial love in the way that Jesus loved on the cross. And there's a very helpful definition that I've given to you before. It comes from a man named Paul Tripp. And, and he writes about this kind of self-sacrificial love. Have this in mind as we go through this sermon. What do I mean when we say that we are supposed to love one another? It's not the romantic concept that you think of, of Hollywood and movies and people falling in love. Love is this conscious decision where we willingly, for the good of others, choose to sacrifice, choose to set our rights aside for their good. So here's the definition that I've given you before, that love is a willing self-sacrifice 
for the good of another that doesn't demand reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. Let me say it again, in case if you want to write it down. Love is a willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that doesn't demand reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. You think about this in terms of the gospel. So he calls this cruciform love, the author that came up with that definition. The the idea of, as I have done, this is how you are to love others. Jesus was willing to lay his life down for us, knowing that we couldn't reciprocate. We could not pay him back. This was not an equal exchange. This was not because we had something to offer, he was willing to lay his life down. It was a willing self-sacrifice for our good. We were the ones that benefited us of this. Jesus did not get anything glorious in return. It it was for our good that he willingly laid his life down, even though we couldn't reciprocate, nor did he demand that we be deserving. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, is how Paul puts it in the Gospel of Romans. That there was nothing good in us uh, wherewith we earned or deserved God's love. Instead, it was a willing self-sacrifice for the good of another, that doesn't demand reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. And Jesus comes on the scene here with his disciples and he says, in the way that I've loved you, this is how you are to love others. There's no greater sacrifice than this, than that someone is willing to lay down his life for his friends. And then he says this, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I've made known to you. He's helping them to see and realize uh, they do have a special privileged place. Even though they couldn't offer anything in return to the father, he, he helps them to see that he's not just no longer does he call them servants or slaves for the servants and the slaves don't have any idea what the master is doing. Someone with supreme authority, they have no need to explain themselves. They have no need to say, here's what I'm doing and here's why I'm asking for you to obey my commands. Instead, they simply just get to speak and their rule is law. Certainly, God carries that kind of authority. In what Jesus is saying, he's not negating that kind of authority, but he's saying, what the Father has made known to me, I've revealed to you. You're, you're my friends. There's, there's a mutual relationship here, and the disciples, in a special way, got to understand more of God's saving plan the, of a way for God to save both Jew and Gentile, and the things that the Father had revealed to him, he made known to them. He had a special friendship with them. He had a special relationship with them. And yet it wasn't because they themselves were special. It was because of God's sovereign choice and love that he chose them. He says in verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Why did God have this special relationship with his followers? He chose them. He appointed them. That word means to set apart or to ordain. He had a special task and responsibility for his disciples. And he wanted them to go. He wanted them to bear fruit. As we've come out of those few verses of the vine and the branches, and God's purpose for his disciples was that they would abide, that you and I would abide, that we would bear fruit in the task and the mission that he has put before us. And supremely, he said, 
In those previous 11 verses, he said that they needed to abide in him by keeping his commandments. Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. This, by, by this unbreakable chain, the, the love that God had uh, for his children, love of the Father would mean that the, the followers also had a love for one another. And Jesus needed to explain it. He wanted them to see and understand. It would be a defining characteristic of the disciples that loved him. Let's look at this other relationship. We're going to come back and focus on this idea of what it means to love one another as the church and in the church. But look at this other relationship. There's a turn here. There's another thing they need to be prepared for. Jesus wants them to understand this in verse 18. If the Father, excuse me, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus wants them to realize, listen, if you get treated poorly by the world, if the world shows you hatred, recognize they hated me. They, they wouldn't love you as their own because you are not of them. I've chosen you out of the world. He has that message for them to know and understand. And so Jesus wants them to realize and be prepared. This, this would be different. Up to this point, the disciples have seen opposition from the Pharisees and other religious leaders, but that opposition and target has been squarely on Jesus. In a few short hours, he's going to be removed out of the picture. Shortly after that, he'll ascend to heaven after his resurrection, and, and even the religious leaders themselves will realize getting rid of Jesus did not get rid of the problem. Now there's a whole bunch of people who are followers of Jesus. Now we have to get rid of them. And so the bullseye moves. Jesus is no longer the target. And Jesus needs them to understand, don't be surprised by this. They hated me. They're going to hate you because their hatred is squarely focused on who Jesus is and his relation to the Father. So let's keep going. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Remember that came up also in chapter 13. There it was applied to the concept of an example for serving one another. Here it's used as an example that the way they treated Jesus is the same way that they will treat his followers. Servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had done... If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. With the time we have this morning, I won't be able to unpack everything that's in this, but in summary, Jesus is saying, expect the persecution and hatred because it's directly tied to the way that they persecuted and hated me. Their response will be the same. And now that I've come and spoken truth, it condemns them and they're guilty of this sin of rejecting me. And in the same way, they're going to persecute you. Now we understand that, that, that a, a community of believers, uh, those who are committed to Christ, uh, is not in alignment with the world's values and philosophies and beliefs. And we might think that that separation or opposition is first sociological, 
based on friendships and relationships and the way that relationships in society, those unspoken laws that govern those things. But as Don Carson pointed out, it's not first sociological, but theological disagreement, which is the heart of the opposition. And because the world is opposed to Jesus and his message, the very truth of who he is is a condemning truth. To say that, that others don't measure up by God's laws and God's standards. And so realize that there will be opposition that comes. But that doesn't mean that the disciples are without hope. That doesn't mean that the disciples won't have the help they need to live this life. Look at verse 26. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness about me because you have been with me from the beginning. This is the third time in the farewell discourse that the Holy Spirit has been brought to light and the fact that the Father would send a helper and uh, most of this will be covered next week in the in those chapter in verses uh, 4 through 15 of chapter 16 so we'll save some of it until then but the helper the Holy Spirit would come and now in light of that if, if the first verses I read about the hatred and persecution help you understand the cause of that hatred? Well, what's the disciples' response supposed to be? Look at chapter 16. Here's what they're supposed to do with some of it. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. And see, uh, again, I'll go back to Don Carson. He pointed out that their greatest need, the greatest danger, excuse me, that they would face from the opposition was not the threat of death, but the threat of denial of the faith, the threat of falling away, the threat of apostasy. Again, I'm not saying they could lose their salvation. We covered that in depth last week. He said, I, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you, re you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus wants to strengthen their faith. Don't lose heart. When you see the evidence of this play out, remember I told you, I prepared you for it. This is the response that you would naturally expect from those who are in rebellion to the moral lawgiver. Our message, the truth that we bring of the gospel, is that there is a God. He's a king. There's a God who declares what's right and wrong. And we cannot declare our message of the gospel and the cross without saying, we, you and I, the world, has offended that righteous and holy God. And so by proclamation of the truth of the gospel, we, we, we speak the words of Scripture, and Scripture itself calls many into condemnation and judgment. And there will be many who will react against that. So, do we as the church lose hope? Do we give up? Do we throw in the towel? Do we hide? Well, no. Uh, and, and at the close of chapter 16, Jesus makes a statement that brings great hope. He says, take heart. I have overcome the world. And, and, and there are many in the world who will be opposed to you. But listen, there are some in the world that God has chosen to draw to himself. And as we proclaim this message, as we seek to abide in him, as we seek to bear fruit, uh, uh, there will be some who will come to faith in Christ. There will be some who will be opposed to the message. And that will bring opposition and persecution. And we see that 
played out in the world around us. And the day may be coming where we see it played out more face-to-face for us here in the United States. But don't lose heart. There's a message that needs to be proclaimed. So let's come back to this idea of loving one another. What does it mean for us to love one another here in the church? Why was this so important to Jesus as he uh, spoke to the fact that in chapter 13 he said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. So let me ask you this. Do you love the brothers and sisters at Shawnee Baptist Church? Excuse me. Think about that. Let names and faces come to mind. Certainly, there are, there are many people that we would quickly think, yes, I, I love these brothers and sisters. They are great friends. But there's a... And you are good at loving. We, there is warm relationships in this church. But one thing we have to keep in mind, there's, there's a way that this has been twisted that most of us aren't even realizing because most of us has gr- have grown up in the United States in this idea of uh, we live in individualistic and consumeristic societies, right? If I want a cheeseburger with no pickles and extra ketchup and only onions on half of it, I can get that. I can go to a place and consume that. Here's my money. I have the right to receive it my way, my wants, right? And that has so infiltrated our idea of love that we we forget how these relationships work and play themselves out. And most of us aren't even conscious of it. It's something I have to check myself on regularly. So why was love so important to the New Testament writers? Why was love within the church so important to Jesus? If you flip over to 1 Corinthians 13, and I'll have these words for you on the screen as well. 1 Corinthians 13, and here Paul is writing about love, and he has this to say. Here's the biblical definition of love as it plays itself. Here's some of the defining characteristics of love as they play themselves out in the life of the church. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And I'll quit right there. Many of us have heard this passage of scripture read at weddings, and while it is a good example of the love between a husband and wife, marriage has no context in what Paul is writing about here when he defines love in 1 Corinthians 11, excuse me, in 1 Corinthians 13. He's in the middle of several chapters of what orderly worship looks like and the relationships within a church. Here's the way a church is supposed to function. Here's the way things are supposed to play out when you gather together as a church. And right in the middle of that, he has this command and instruction, love one another. And here's what love looks like. And he says, if you don't have love, uh, it, 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 it's going to create, make your ministry be worthless and futile. And so he says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. He's saying, brothers and sisters there in the church, treat one another that way. 
bear all things, believe all things, hope all things. Now here's the problem. Here's the problem. We tend to confuse like for love. Every now and then, one of my children will try to get the best of me. And with this little smirk on his face, they'll say, Dad, I don't like you. And then with a twinkle in his eye, I love you, right? We, we tend to confuse like and love, and there, we can go through this list, and we can say, yeah, there's plenty of people at Shawnee that I'm willing to be patient and kind and love. There's plenty of things that I, be, I, I bear all things, and I believe all things, and I hope all things. There's many, many people that I, that I really like here. And, and we tend to think that for, for our friends, we're willing to extend the benefit of the doubt. If I like you, I'm willing to be kind to you. If I like you, I'm willing to treat you the best way. And so he, here's what can end up happening. We, we say it like this. Uh, if, if you're nice to me, or if I like you, or if you meet my needs, or if you make me feel good, then this is the way I'll love you, 1 Corinthians 13. But that's not love. That's not the biblical definition of self-sacrificial love that doesn't need to be reciprocated or demand that the person being loved is deserving. It's not the way that Jesus showed love to us when he laid down his life for us. You see, if I'm only 1 Corinthians 13 towards you when you're nice to me, that's not love of you. That's love of self. That's a selfish kind of love. Paul Tripp, who I quoted earlier, he, he, he references this, to, this concept on a topic of marriage, and he says, he illustrates it by saying, we see it played out in Western culture dating, right? You see boy and girl, and they meet each other, and they're trying to capture the hearts of one another, and because this young man thinks that this young lady is very, very special, you will see him bend over backwards to woo the heart of this young woman, Right? And so that's how it happens that young men dating these young ladies will spend hours shopping in malls as if they actually enjoy that. (laughs) And these young women will spend hours watching sports with these young men as if they actually enjoy that. And some of you are nudging your spouse and saying, no, but it's true of me. Right? What's going on there, right? It's not, it's not sacrificial love of other. More often than, and I'm, I'm not condemning everyone that's ever done this because it's not true in all scenarios, but more often than what's not, that in this young man's heart, he says, this woman, because I love myself, she makes me feel good, and I want to give her what she wants so that that way I myself feel good, right? Uh, and over time, the heart begins to get exposed, and, and, and the way God works on us with uh, marriages, those, those uh, things begin to get worked out and we begin to understand, then wait a minute, here's what real sacrificial love looks like. But until then, we confuse like for love. And we view other people and our relationships within the church. And if these, here's, here's the way that he says it as he's speaking on these relationships. He says that when we view people as vehicles or means to what we want, well, then we're friends with them. 1 Corinthians 13, all day. But when people become obstacles standing in the way of what we want, well, then, then we are not willing to extend love the way Christ showed love to us. And that becomes dangerous. 
That becomes costly. That's where relationships in the church break down and break apart. And this, to, to be able to love this way when people sin against us, when people hurt us, when there's offenses that need to be cleared up, to be able to show that kind of love among one another, it's costly, it's painful, it's difficult, and it won't come easily. And yet, that's what it means to belong to a church, to commit together. You see, this, this relationship in the church, it's not like a gym membership where you pay your dues and you get to use the services and, that you want as long as they're meeting your needs and when they don't, you go on to another gym. It, it's a covenantal commitment where we say, I'm committing myself to, to live out the Christian life here with these brothers and sisters and I'm going to bear all things and believe all things and hope all things and endure all things because love never ends and it will be costly. It will hurt and people will hurt you. I will hurt you if we stick at this relationship long enough and we will have to do the hard work of loving one another and bearing all things and believing all things and hoping all things and we've got to understand that Jonathan Lehman in his book The Rule of Love says this when the idea of a binding commitment I use the word covenantal relationship you could, you could translate or you could uh, swap those out when the idea of a binding commitment is removed from the definition of love churches become places where personal sacrifices are seldom made and so the gospel is seldom pictured instead individuals will come and go and church hop with little care we join lightly and we exit lightly since doing so does not violate our sense of love and its obligations we don't stop to weigh the consequences of our departure on others we don't ask the pastors to help us think through our decisions we take our purchase back to the checkout counter it's nothing personal and he's describing just this light-hearted attitude towards it but loving one another in the church and getting through the things that a church goes through, it's costly, it's painful. I used to think in my naive uh, young aspirations to pastoral ministry that if a church could get healthy enough, you would get to the point where you would never hurt one another. There would be no conflict. I'm realizing that that's just simply not true. The, the, the difference between a healthy church and an unhealthy church is hopefully the manner at which we work at going through these situations and loving one another in spite of our tendency to hurt one another. Where are we going to... Yeah, where is the foundation to be able to love one another in that way? It's only in the gospel. This is why Jesus says his commandment is love one another as I have loved you to the point of a willingness to lay down his life. The gospel fuels our ability to love one another. Milton Vincent in his book, A Gospel Primer, I gave one of these away last Sunday night. He says this, that when my mind is fixed on the gospel, I have ample stimulation to show God's love to other people. For I am always willing to show love to others when I am freshly mindful of the love that God has shown me. Also, the gospel gives me the wherewithal to, for, to give forgiving grace to those who have wronged me, for it reminds me daily of the forgiving grace that God is showing me. Doing good and showing love to those who have wronged me is always the opposite of what my sinful flesh wants me to do. Nonetheless, when I remind myself of my sins against God and his, forgi and his forgiving and generous grace toward me, I give the gospel an opportunity to reshape my perspective and to put me in a frame of mind wherein I actually desire to give the same grace to those who have wronged me. 
You see, the gospel, as Jesus has loved us, is how we ought also to love one another. And it's how the world will know that we are the followers of Christ. So how about it? How are your relationships within this church? Are you loving one another? Not just liking one another, but loving one another. I've been in pastoral ministry now for eight years. I have failed at this more times than I care to remember. It's painful. It is costly. It hurts. I told you last week, if I stepped on toes, I was working on myself. This would make two weeks in a row that I, I recognize and realize there's places in my life that I need to grow as a pastor in loving you. I want you to know my wife and I love you dearly. I love being your pastor. I love you as sheep but I need to grow in showing the kind of biblical love that Jesus commands here, the kind of 1 Corinthian self-sacrificial love. Some of you know that because I've had to come to you and ask for forgiveness for times where I didn't show that love. Um, If I don't know I've offended you, come to me afterwards because I would take a number. Um, (laughs) If I haven't offended you yet, Stick around. It won't take, I haven't been here long enough yet, and it will happen, right? Um, How about for you in your relationships with one another? As you think about Shawnee Baptist Church, would the community of Shemong and Tabernacle in Southampton look at the years that God has put this community of believers here and say, there's a group of people that loves one another? There's something different about the way that they treat one another in the face of wrong. That should be our goal. That should be our desire. And whether you've been in this church six years or since the beginning, by the way, 42 years ago today, on March 24th, some of you in this room signed your name to the Charter Covenant saying we will commit to loving one another in this body. And it is a commitment. It is not easy. It is hard. But it's one of the things that, by which all men will know that we are Christ's disciples when we love one another as he has loved us. And only the gospel can fuel that kind of love. Let's ask for God's help that we would be that kind of people. Father, help us to love one another as you have loved us. We want to be people that recognize your love and extend that love to others because of the truth of the gospel and what you've accomplished for us on the cross. Help us to bear all things and believe all things and hope all things and endure all things. Help us to be people that are quick to forgive and extend grace and have the gospel at the forefront of our minds such that we, we realize that you are at work in our hearts and lives. And so we want to extend that same love to others. Do this, we pray. For the praise of your name, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.